Well, last week we began a series on the throne of God. We're studying this because our world's chaotic, uncertain. This is nothing new, and really, really compared to human history, this isn't anything. Um, and yet, uh, th- life is uncertain now. It's chaotic. Life has always been this way, though. But instead of fearing the uncertainty of life and giving in to the chaos, um, God's people can have confidence because God is on his throne. It's an important truth that goes throughout the scriptures. At certain points in redemptive history, God has peeled back the heavens and given his people a a powerful glimpse of reality, of him reigning in holiness on his throne. This is reality. Things that we can't see, it's a better reality than what we see on the ground. David never physically saw this throne, as far as we're aware, but we could tell from his Psalms that he went there and worshiped. We studied Psalm 11 last week, and David was confident in his moment of crisis. His adversaries were terrified that they were going to be defeated, but David beheld God in worship. He trusted in a sovereign God. This morning, we're going to come one step closer to the throne. David spoke about the throne and gave us some theological facts and gave us some truths about the throne. The prophet Isaiah went there and was absolutely terrified by what he saw. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. This morning, we're going to get to see the, the sovereign king that David sang about. Again, my purpose in studying the throne is not just to go over a couple of Bible stories that you know. Um, we're, not, we're not trying to just get facts here. I want to actually go there with Isaiah. This is terrifying, but it's worth it. This is how God's people develop confidence in any situation. So let's jump right into the text because we have a lot to cover. So we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 6. We'll read the whole chapter. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom, who, and who will go for us? Then I said, here here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants. And houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Lord, guide us this morning through this terrifying, difficult, wonderful, glorious text. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your glory today, God. Would you open our hearts? We trust in you. 
Would you be in the proclamation of your word? Would you comfort your people? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're gonna break this text up into two parts. I was tempted to say, first, the easy part, second, the really hard part, um, but I decided to give it a better name than that. First, God will purify Isaiah before the throne, verses one to seven, and then verses eight to 13, God will send Isaiah from his throne. So he will bring him to the throne and purify him, and from the throne he will send him with a pretty strong message of condemnation. We have a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. First, God will purify Isaiah, verses one through seven. Now, last week we studied Psalm 11 and we saw that we had very little context for David's psalm. We don't know when he wrote it. He just wrote it out of a particularly chaotic uh, circumstance, handed it into the choir master for the people of God to sing in a number of tragic situations. This week, however, we know exactly when Isaiah wrote his message. He, he saw the Lord the year that King Uzziah died. He gives us a date. The year the king Uzziah died, I went to the throne. Now this is a big year for the nation of Judah. Perhaps this doesn't mean much to you. This is a very big year. Uzziah was a really good king. Now he wasn't David, but he also wasn't Ahab. He was a good king. Um, he ascended the throne at age 16 and he lasted 52 years. Think about that. That's over a half of a century. If we were still on our president for 52 years ago, we'd be sitting under Lyndon Johnson. It's a long time, 52 years for one ruler. Now, it could be a bad thing, and it eventually did corrupt with Uzziah, but for the most part, Uzziah was really good at his job. He led the people very well. Second Chronicles 26 gives us a snapshot of his life. Let me give you a few highlights. First, Uzziah trusted God. He followed God. Now, this is probably the most important quality. Does the king trust God? Does the king not trust God? Uzziah trusted God, and he led the nation to believe in, in, in God. He defeated the Philistines, which were the pesky enemy of Judah. They were always nagging Judah. He completely wiped them out and sent them running. It's a big deal. He received tributes from the Ammonites. His neighbors literally just gave him money. They're like, just leave us alone, please, take our money. He fortified Jerusalem. He built the city walls. He loved the soil, and he innovated new farming techniques. Imagine that, a king that gets out with the farmers, and you can just imagine him picking up the dirt and smelling it and saying, let's try to, let's try to prune it this way. And, and all of a sudden, the nation has more food. That's pretty, that's pretty exciting. He increased the military and invented new strategies. He's like, have you ever thought about lining up this way? <laughs> he got in there and, and, and innovated the military. This is my favorite. He invented the catapult. Have you ever seen Lord of the Rings? Cat this is Uzziah, King Uzziah right here. He was famous because God helped him. This is a good run. For a half of a century, Judah had a God-fearing king that took his job very seriously. He defeated his enemies. He increased the, nation, the nation's revenue. He increased the food supply. He strengthened the military. People were happy. They were well-fed. They were sleeping at night. And then he died. Just when the nation needed him most, he died. Because you see, in the year that King Uzziah died, the Assyrian army was gaining strength in the north, and they were currently wreaking havoc in the northern kingdom. They were breathing down the neck of Judah. For the first time in 50 years, the people of Judah didn't have a trustworthy king they could turn to. Or did they? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. They did have a king. They just weren't looking to him. Years of comfort had slowly diverted their eyes off of Uzziah. And Uzziah's actually, his pride went to his head and he had a very terrible ending. The nation was focused on their comfort, 
their food, their walls. They're trusting in something other than God. Isaiah's ministry begins with a glimpse of reality then. God opens the heavens and brings him up so that he can see the sovereign king of the universe. It doesn't feel like it, but God is in control. He is on his throne. He is reigning. Now, the scene that Isaiah saw is absolutely stunning. It's a familiar text. We've, we've, we've heard it. We've sung about it many times. But even still, as we read this, te- this text of Isaiah 6, the picture of God that we see is far bigger and far more terrifying than many of us think when we typically imagine God. We need to go to this text often and just read it and just dwell on it and think about it because when we typically think of God, I feel like our, our, our imagine, imagination shrinks. Isaiah expands it massively. He recorded this vision to show just how God big is, just how big God is. He's far greater, far more majestic than any of us imagine. And if we could just glimpse his greatness, things would change on the ground. John Oswald says it well. Isaiah seems to be saying that if humanity could ever glimpse the true picture of God's greatness and glory, our problem would be well on its way to being solved. If we could just see God and how big he is, our problem here would be on its way to being solved. Judah was crumbling, but God's big. He's sovereign. He's in control. So what does this image of God look, what does this vision of God look like? Surprisingly, Isaiah doesn't say it shouldn't actually be that surprising. We, um, we have the same thing happen in Exodus 24. When Moses is confirming the covenant, he and 70 of the elders of Israel actually see God. You can read it in Isaiah 24. But when they try to describe this picture, all they could talk about is the pavement. <laughs> they couldn't describe God. They just said, the pavement was really wonderful. <laughs> and the same thing happens with Isaiah. He's in front of the throne of God, and instead of describing God, He just says, the hem of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe was massive. That's all he can talk about was the the train of his robe. Nothing else. Nothing else would do. Can't put it into words. Can't even try. Isaiah does paint a stunning picture of what the scene was like, though. There's a lot of activity. It's in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant should have been. This is the representation of God's presence. This is where the throne was, though, in Isaiah's vision. This throne was high and lifted up and exalted. But Isaiah's eyes were fixed on this activity going on around the throne. It was the angelic servants that he started describing. The seraphim were there. We know these to be angels. Now, again, we just have this, I don't know why, maybe it makes us more comfortable or, or something, but we just shrink this picture. And I'm not sure if you're with me, but I just, when, when I hear that the seraphim were there, I just imagine a couple of angels, maybe a couple harps, I don't know. It's, they're pretty terrifying creatures in, even in the text, but you just melt them down to maybe three or four angels there just singing a high-pitched song like choir boys back and forth to each other. It's not the picture at all. It just says the seraphim were there. How many? Probably too many to count. It gets better. The Hebrew for seraphim literally means burning one. It's a good chance that Isaiah saw a countless host of fiery angels flying around the Lord. Are you terrified yet? Each angel had six wings. That's a massive angelic being. But only two of them were used for flying. The other four were employed to cover their face and their body. Now think about this. These are sinless creatures pure. And even in God's presence, they had to cower before God. 
They had to cover themselves before God's holiness. That's how holy God is. Amazing. Isaiah tells us that the angels are calling out to one another. They begin this song and they start singing back and forth. Now, imagine how loud and intimidating this is as they sing the song and start chanting it back and forth. Now, this illustration will pale in comparison, but imagine the fourth quarter of a tight game at the Rock. One more defensive stop and we win the game. It's fourth down. We just need one more stop. It's fourth down. They call timeout. What are we doing? We're on our feet, and somebody starts it. Ah, and then over here, stirred. <laughs> You've been there, right? Ah, stay. Why are we doing that? We're trying to freak out the other team. <laughs> We're trying to show them just how powerful and awesome we are. If the conditions are right, even in this small little mountain town of Boone, North Carolina, we can get a chant going that's actually quite intimidating. It's fun to be there. Now take your mind off football. Go back to the throne of God. <laughs> if you can do that. It's March. We have a few more months. So, Countless angelic beings, six-winged, fiery creatures, crying out to one, or, one another loudly, declaring the awesome holiness of a God that Isaiah couldn't even describe. Do you feel the terror? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it just builds and builds. And I imagine the song got louder as the angels sang and as they just got fired up. Let's explore the lyrics to the song because they add to the terror of the scene. We're used to the term holy, holy, holy. We have it in a lot of our songs. But it might help to understand what exactly is going on, Okay in the Hebrew language. The angels aren't repeating it because it just has a nice lyrical rhythm. It sounds good when you repeat it. They're not repeating it because we're forgetful creatures and we need to be reminded. No, 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 no. I don't know Hebrew, but every commentator agrees and they point out a, a feature of the Hebrew language. In English, we like to use superlatives. We just like to declare things the best. Man, these are the best mashed potatoes I've ever tasted in my life, right? We have lots of ways to say these. These are fantastic. These are the best. To make the same point in Hebrew, they don't have that function, so you have to just double the word. These are potato potatoes. <laughs> Last week, I had potatoes. These are potato potatoes. That's how you make a point. You double the word. In fact, in just a few chapters, um, Isaiah will, will, will write these beloved words. Isaiah 26, 3. It's probably on your fridge or in your car or on your mirror. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is on you because he trusts in you. The Hebrew, for perfect peace, we translate it in English, perfect peace, because it sounds nice. It's a superlative. What kind of peace? Perfect peace. In Hebrew, it's peace, peace. You keep him in shalom, shalom, double. Only in Isaiah 6 is an attribute declared three times. God's not holy. He's not holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy the holiest of beings. There's no one like our God. Even the angels cower in his presence. The angels are shouting this back and forth, holy, holy, holy. They also declare that the whole earth is full of his glory. His holiness and glory is not contained to the temple in this little room. It spills out of the temple into the entire earth. It's great news, but it's also terrifying news. Because who can stand before the awful holiness 
glorious God. Isaiah certainly couldn't. As, he, as he's witnessing the scene, he immediately felt the weight of his sin. The room shakes, smoky, thunderous. And amidst the triumphant shouts, he begins to be crushed by the weight of God's glory. Which, again, the Hebrew word for glory simply means heavy. It's a real, powerful force. When you declare something to be glorious, you're actually declaring something of substance. And these angels are declaring that God is real, God is present, God is here, and that glory begins to crush Isaiah. That's why he declares, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Can we be honest? Worship is scary. The throne of God is comforting. That's why I wanted to do this series in the throne of God because it is a comforting reality for God's people. But it is also terrifying. If God truly is the holiest being and if his glory does spill into the earth and it comes toward us, we should cower with Isaiah when we worship. Because in God's presence, we recognize that we're not holy. God is holy, holy, holy. We are not. When we see him as he truly is, we see ourselves as we truly are and we unravel. God is perfect light. We're loaded with sin. And when we approach that perfect light, we are exposed and laid out naked before God. It's terrifying. His glory is heavy. Because of this reality, I think a lot of us want the experience of worship, but we'd rather do without that crushing reality of his presence. Give us the smoke, give us the thunder, give us the loud music, give us somebody to tell us about that God, but please don't give us God. Because when, we sh- when he shows up, we see our sin. We hit the ground like Isaiah. His holy presence requires a very difficult response. And for most of us, that's simply too much to bear. It seems much safer for us then to worship the idea of God. And so we try to remove the weight of his glory. We try to keep him abstract and safely contained in the heavens, somewhere on his throne, though we've never been there and we'd never go, dare go there. There's actually an entire industry devoted to helping us get this experience without the crushing reality of God's presence. As I was writing this message, I received an email from a book publisher, a really good book publisher. We've used their Bible studies before. We'll use them again. But I was just shocked by the headline, by the subject line. They're advertising a new line of Easter material for children, and this is what they said. This year, bring Easter to life for your children. Here's my immediate thought. When did Easter die? Was Christ's resurrection not good enough? If I have to step in and resurrect the Easter story for somebody, you're no longer getting the Easter story. If I have to help you out and say this is... Now, I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to make Easter fun and engaging for the kids. This is very appropriate. Let's do that. But when we divert our focus away from God and give them something else... When we divert their focus away from God as he's revealed himself and try to recreate a fun and engaging worship experience that has the resemblance of God but is completely void of the power and the holiness and the glory of God, we miss everything. 
We'll either worship God as he has revealed himself in all of his glory and holiness, or we'll worship an idol in our own making. This is not just a children's problem, which by the way, I'm very proud of our children's ministry. We hosted a conference here yesterday and invited many children's directors throughout the community to come in. And the the theme of it, let's give the children Jesus. Just give them Jesus. Let's just stand up there and teach to our children in a fun and engaging way, but give them Christ. Super encouraged by that. The reality is, is that when Isaiah saw the true God, when when we get this picture of God, it's terrifying. Isaiah saw it and he's ready to die. He knew definitively that he was unholy. Even the highly respected prophet, Isaiah was well respected, good background, good education, loved the Lord, but even he couldn't stand in the presence of God. At this point, the narrative picks up quickly. Suddenly an angel grabbed a coal from the altar and rushes toward Isaiah. Now this is the end. Now, all right, so we're familiar with this story. We're thinking, don't worry, Isaiah, it's just your cleansing. You're just gonna be cleansed from your sin. That's not what's going through Isaiah's mind at this point. We read it last week in, in Psalm 11. Listen to this. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Here comes the fire from the altar. Isaiah was getting ready to drink the portion of his cup. He was an unholy, sinful being. Here comes the altar. Here comes the coal from the altar. It's over. Isaiah was done. But he wasn't done. The throne of God is a throne of grace. Instead of death, Isaiah received life. Instead of a fire that consumed Isaiah, the angel brought a fire that cleansed him. This is all from God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. God's holiness demands perfection, but his grace creates the perfection that he demands. Let me say that again. God's holiness demands perfection, but his grace creates the perfection that he demands. Martin Luther says it this way, and what many scholars say is the most profound line that Martin Luther ever wrote, which is saying something. Heidelberg Disputation Thesis 28. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man, it comes alive when it finds something beautiful, when it finds something pleasing. I like that. I love that. That's good. God can't do that because when he scans the world, he sees a sinful mess. He has to create that which is pleasing to it. So when God sees Isaiah in front of the throne, he didn't say, that's what I'm looking for. He saw a sinful mess. He saw a man of unclean lips that represented a people with unclean lips. But he forgave the sin and then he said, that's what I'm looking for. A new creation. That's the grace of God. The throne of God is a throne of grace. Now you might ask, how did God cleanse Isaiah? We're not told in this chapter. It's simply a mystery at this point. Something from that altar was sufficient to cleanse Isaiah's guilt. And something from that altar was enough to to say, "You're, you're atoned for. What was it? We don't know. It was a mystery. Isaiah was simply glad to be forgiven. The answer was revealed 800 years later when God's son, Jesus, cried out in agony, I'm undone, deliver me. But this time, God did not deliver. It was the will of God to crush him for our sake. 
Jesus was the sacrifice on the altar and his blood cleansed Isaiah and his blood cleanses us. And we cannot stand before a holy God without the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. This would make a good stopping place. A lot of good sermons from Isaiah 6 that end in verse 7 and I'm sure many of you are wanting to stop but let's go on because the conversation from the throne continues. It's gonna transition though. And let me give you a disclaimer. I'm about to enter into one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. I'll not answer every one of your questions. If you have more questions, Scott gets back and God gets back in like eight days or so. So you can save them for him. But it's worth exploring. If you want to study the throne, you need to take the difficult stuff with the pleasing stuff. And so Isaiah has just been cleansed. Let's not just leave the throne here because there's some other things that are happening on the throne. If we want to know the throne of God, we've got to study this. So with that, let's quickly move into the second part of our outline. God will send Isaiah from the throne. As soon as he was cleansed, he heard the talking in the heaven. There's, there, there's a conversation going on, and Isaiah's over listening. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah immediately volunteered. Here I am, send me. I, I'm right here, I, I'll go. This is a mark of a person that's been touched by grace. You wanna know how you've been touched by grace? you volunteer for God's service. I'm in. I'm all in. In a matter of seconds, think about this. You go from, woe is me, I'm done, to here I am, send me, I'll go. That's the mark of a person that's been touched by grace. Grace always leads to service. If you have an aversion towards godly service, let me say this gently. I realize there's seasons of your life where it's easier, where it's less. If you have an aversion, though, just straight up to, to godly service, towards serving the church, serving your family, serving your community, towards evangelizing. If that just kind of makes you cringe, we, we might need to go re-preach the first part of the sermon again. You might not understand God's grace fully in your life because a person that's been touched by grace, the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me, we stand up in God's service and we say, I will go wherever you send me. And that's what Isaiah did. Isaiah was fueled by God's grace, and this is critical because nothing else would have sustained him for the mission that he was about to receive. If Isaiah had simply volunteered to impress God or to please God or to show how righteous and awesome he was, he wouldn't have made it a week. Because listen to his mission again. This is not a fun mission. So God says, okay, you'll go. Here's what your mission is. Go say to this people. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What? I said, how long, O Lord? How long are you gonna make me send this message of judgment? Until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. It's almost mind-boggling. Isaiah, go preach to this people, but don't win any converts. In fact, preach in such a way that you make sure not to win any converts, not by deception, but just... Bold truth, preach in such a way so clear that nobody gets saved. The goal for your ministry is judgment and condemnation. If you have a hard time processing this text, you're not alone. I'm with you. Every commentator that I read acknowledged the difficulty of this text. 
but I was too far in the week before, before I could get out of it. So we just have to go with it. Some even suggested a revised history. They say, oh, well, this is a cute suggestion, though. All right, well, Isaiah never saw the throne in Isaiah 6. This actually was a later edition at the end of a very long and unsuccessful ministry. The guy's sitting on a rock. He's depressed. He's preached, and nobody listened. Nobody was saved. Nobody, was belie- nobody believed him, and he's got to, like, justify himself somehow. So how did he do it? Wait. Yeah, that's a good, I was never supposed to win any converts. And so he went back in Isaiah 6 and he said, uh, send this message of judgment and condemnation. Nobody will be saved. And that made him feel better. I'm a pretty successful guy. I did exactly what God told me. Nobody was saved. That's cute, but we shouldn't try to wriggle out of a text that easy. If we do that, man, we miss something powerful. There's a purpose for this. The truth is God sent Isaiah with a message of judgment. He was to preach the truth in such a way that his, con- that his hearers would be condemned upon hearing. What's happening? Why is God doing this? Why is God judging his people like this? First thing that we need to remember is that God is not just judging a neutral people. No, the Israelites were God's people. They were his chosen people. He was more than willing to save and forgive. He wanted to save and forgive his people. If you don't believe that, we can go and go over the first part of the chapter again. Like literally, Isaiah was just saved and just forgiven by God. The history of Israel, the story of Israel is a history of God's unmerited grace and salvation. He picked the people that did not love him, that did not care, and he just said, I'm gonna save you over and over and over. But it's also a story of the people rejecting and walking away and constantly rejecting. They received the love and they found another lover. And God pursued, they found another lover. God pursued, they found another lover. In spite of the signs and the wonder and the love and the care and the tenderness from this persistent God, they continued to walk away and they refused to believe. This presents a dilemma for a preacher. If you preach the truth, they would continue to reject it. God wants you back. No, we don't believe that. They continue to reject it, which would lead to their judgment. If Isaiah altered the truth to make it more palatable, they might accept it, but nobody wins. He would save this generation, but not really save them. It would be to their own judgment again. They wouldn't be getting the truth. And so God commissioned him, preach the truth boldly, preach the truth clearly. It would clog up their faculties Their eyes, their ears, their heart, they just would be slow to return and repent. It would end up judging them. Isaiah says, how long until the ground is laid waste? Because what's happening here is that they would be judged and condemned, this generation, but it would clear the way for restoration afterwards. The very final statement, the holy seed is its stump. Clear the ground, judge the generation, but I'm not done. This isn't the last word. Judgment is part of God's plan. It's not the last word in his plan. The stump will produce more growth. Restoration will come. There's always a remnant. There's always a people that will come back. The holy seed is in the stump. Now we should take note of the particular form of judgment because this is a very important part of the text. And if we want to understand it, we need to dig into this for just a second. Critical details. 
Isaiah's preaching would make their heart, in the Hebrew again, it just, it, it, it's kind of disgusting. It makes their heart fat and their ears sticky and their eyes glaze over and foggy. And kind of just, it just makes them slow to be able, their senses and their faculties would become dull. Their heart wouldn't turn. Their eyes would just be fogged over. Their ears would be sticky. Um, they wouldn't be able to discern the truth. Now again, that seems harsh that God would send this kind of a judgment to them. What's happening here? Whenever the Bible uses this type of sensory language, you're, you're dull, it's, it's speaking of the sin of idolatry. Israel had rejected God and they'd turned to wooden idols. The God that was on the throne, the real God of the universe, the holy God, they had turned to wooden idols. They gave the glory of God to an image, to another God. They called something else holy. Think of the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai dancing around a golden calf. This is our God that brought us out of Egypt. And they gave the glory to a wooden metal thing. This type of idol worship had a numbing effect on the people. You can't do this and get away with it. If you do this, if you worship idols, your heart's gonna start becoming numb and callous. Psalm 115 vividly describes this process of desensitization with idol worship. Um, I'll read it. I'm gonna start at verse four. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. You built them. Their eyes have mouths. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk. And they make not a sound in their throat. It's just mockery. You've done a really good job creating this idol that you're worshiping, but they have no senses. They are dead. This is the kicker, though, in verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. You want to worship a dead thing? You'll become a dead thing. Read Isaiah 44 later on. Isaiah takes just, he goes to town on them and is mocking their idol worship. Your God is in the heavens. Your God would save you. And yet you turn from the holy living God to wooden things that you made with your own hands. The point of this, the point of Psalm 115 is that you eventually become what you worship. I was thinking about this this morning. I was actually reading an article on it. This is dead. We call it smart. It's dead. When you drop it and you crack the screen, it will not recover. I got a cut on my finger this week. It is recovering because I am a living thing. When you get a cut on this thing, it does not recover unless you give it to Logan Gregory and he fixes your phone for you. Thank you, Logan. Um, it's a dead thing. And so when you serve this tyrant in your pocket, you slowly start reacting to your family. You slowly stop appreciating beauty. You slowly start distancing yourself from things that are actually alive and good. When you worship a dead thing, your ears get foggy, your eyes get foggy, your heart gets numb. Isaiah worshiped a holy God and he was set apart for God's holy service. The Israelites worshiped a dead piece of wood and they began to resemble the dead piece of wood. They had eyes, but they didn't see. They had ears, but they didn't hear. They, become, they became deaf, dumb, unholy. They didn't want God, they didn't want the truth. So when God clogged them up, he was giving them what they wanted and what they justly deserved. Now, let me close with this. Does this remind you of Jesus' ministry? Does it remind you of what Jesus constantly ran into in Mark's gospel? He's opening eyes, but still people are blind. He's opening ears, but still people are deaf. 
Jesus preached and he healed and he brought the glory of God to the earth and he never once twisted the truth. He brought the glory of God to earth and people didn't care. So? Everyone rejected him. The religious leaders weren't transformed by him. We're, we're in the Passion Week in our study in Mark's Gospel. When Jesus walks in, they're not, they're not enthralled by him. They're threatened by him. This is why in Jesus' darkest moments, he walked around quoting Isaiah 6. He quoted it often. John quoted it for him in chapter 12, just days after Lazarus rose from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. People didn't believe. Listen to verse 37 of John 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. They wanted to believe in him. They knew he was true, but for the fear of Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would never be put out of the synagogue, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Oh, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God because the glory that comes from God is terrifying. It's heavy, but it's the only thing that can save. The religious leaders sought glory. They wanted glory, but they got it from man and not from God. Again, it's just easier to find. It takes no work. It takes no repentance, no accountability. It's less terrifying and so these religious leaders honored God with their lips, but they refused to worship him, worship him, and it led to their judgment. So Isaiah 6, it's an Old Testament passage, but don't think that this is harsh Old Testament and Jesus comes to bring a message of just peace and everything good. Even Jesus condemned the stiff-necked people that did not believe. Do you remember the time when he cursed a fig tree? We just read about it. Jesus had seen enough. But like Isaiah's message of judgment that led to future restoration, the seed is in the stump. Jesus' condemnation of Israel opened the door for the Gentiles to hear this, the gospel. Even through judgment, restoration would come. And so as we close, let me implore it with the author of Hebrews this morning to approach the throne of grace. What is your response to this text this morning, to the terrible, awful, holy throne of God? Approach the throne of grace. He will forgive you. Don't harden your hearts like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Don't harden your hearts like they did in Isaiah's day. Don't harden your hearts like they did in Jesus' day. Don't refuse his grace. Don't seek glory from another place. Don't turn to some other king. It's easy, but it's dead. And if you worship it, you will become like that. But come and behold the king of glory on his throne. See his glory, terrifying as it is. Feel the weight of it. Even feel the weight of your sin. It's heavy, it's awful, but God has defeated it and he's healed it and he's cured it. But you must repent and receive his unmerited grace by faith and then get up and joyfully serve him. Those are your two options. G.K. Bill says it well, you resemble what you revere either for ruin or restoration you resemble what you revere, either for ruin or restoration. Israel revered their dead wooden idols and it led to their dead wooden heart. 
Isaiah revered God on his throne and he was restored. Would you stand with me as we pray? Oh God, we want to know you. You are high and lifted up, exalted on your throne. This is terrifying. Who can stand? Only by your grace and only by the blood of Jesus can we stand this morning. You are more than willing to save and to forgive and to heal. And I pray that the heart of every listener this morning would respond in faith and to raise our hands high and to praise you and worship God and to feel the weight of your glory, heavy though it is, God. It's a terrifying reality, but it's also a wonderful reality because from the throne comes grace. You have forgiven us. You have healed us. And even in the midst of judgment, God, you, you bring restoration out of that. You're a good God. And so as your people this morning, we just want to respond by singing loudly, by giving you the worship and the glory that is currently going on right now in the heavens. We want to join that song and describe to you greatness, ascribe to you goodness, and to sing of your great, great wonders. This is all in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior, who made it possible. Amen.